Hi everyone, and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology. Today, we're delighted to introduce Hope Rugo from the UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Centre in San Francisco and David Cheskon from the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre in Toronto, who will discuss the latest in breast cancer presented at SABOX 2021. In this podcast, they offer their perspectives on the latest antibody drug conjugates, as well as potentially practice-changing trial data from the Keynote 522 and Keynote 355 trials, which both looked at prembolizumab in triple-negative breast cancer, as well as exciting findings in the field of oral SADS. I now pass you over to the experts for today's breast cancer session with VJ Oncology. Hello and welcome to VJ Oncology's Breast Cancer Review from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium 2021, where myself, Hope Rugo from the University of California, San Francisco's Comprehensive Cancer Center, and my colleague, David Cheskun, are here in person on site. David, thank you for being here. Tell us where you're from. Great. Thank you. It's great to be here in person with you, I hope, at um the San Antonio Convention Center. I'm from Princess Margaret Cancer Center in Toronto in the University of Toronto, where I'm a breast medical oncologist and clinician scientist. Great, and uh, both of us had actually the tremendous honor and pleasure of discussing abstracts. I discussed abstracts yesterday morning and you discussed abstracts this morning for the two, uh, two of the four plenary sessions at this year's San Antonio, a little bit different organization than the past due to the virtual format of the meeting combined format. Um, so I think we're going to start discussing the first day, and you had some questions you wanted to ask. Yeah, so you had the uh, privilege of discussing some of the triple negative breast cancer abstracts while I was en route down from Toronto. Um, and those included the neoadjuvant study of pembrolizumab, Keynote 522, the first-line metastatic study, Keynote 355, and um, also the um, results of the phase one study of um, datapotamab as well in triple negative breast cancer. Is yeah, that right? I specifically discussed 522 and 355, but not datapotamab, but I've also been uh, very involved in discussing those results and uh, participating in uh, at least one of the two planned phase three trials with that Great. agent. But uh, I guess I'll talk about that first. I mean, this is a novel uh, trope two antibody linked to a toxin. Uh, which is Deruxtecan, a, a derivative of Deruxtecan, and it's the same toxin uh, that's part of trastuzumab Deruxtecan now approved for treating HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. And uh, this is a really interesting novel ADC, a little bit different from uh, some others and similar to, again, you know, troop 2 antibody, but the toxicity profile, interestingly, is different from sasetuzumab, and so it does bring up the question of what the variations are in the construct of ADCs that end up creating different profiles. Uh, but this study, which was a uh, really a uh, trial looking at four different groups, and the two pertinent to breast cancer were hormone receptor positive and triple negative disease, heavily pretreated, you know, two more lines of therapy, um, and single arm trial. There was a few patients treated at a higher dose and the majority were treated at the final uh, dose that mo is moving into phase three. Uh, and this antibody drug contract is given every three weeks. Uh, they saw a very nice response rate of 34%, and many of those responses were quite durable. Uh, with seeing, very similar to what we've seen with sasetuzumab, actually. About 30% of the patients appeared to have had an anti-trope 2 ADC, which since we only have one other, I assume to be sasetuzumab. 
The toxicity profile was also really interesting. A lot of stomatitis, grade one and two stomatitis. And uh, apparently this stomatitis can occur anytime during the treatment. And it really does continue as long as you're on the drug. There's a lot of risk mitigation strategies that are being studied. And then uh, also they saw some nausea, but interestingly, not a lot of hematologic toxicity. So the phase uh, three trial that's already getting started is for hormone receptor positive, positive disease, breast where breast we haven't yeah. seen the results yet. Right. Um, and in triple negative disease, the study is still under discussion. So you've had a lot of, uh, you've contributed a lot to the, to the management of stomatitis for other breast cancer agents. What was your sense of the stomatitis described here as it might differ from um, Everlimus, for example, where this has been a question in the past? Well, I think it actually sounds very similar. I haven't given the drug yet, but uh, I think, you know, with Everolimus, when we were first learning about, I mean, we, we really hadn't seen much stomatitis in breast cancer prior to Everolimus. So we were inexperienced with that toxicity. It's kind of like the learning curve with ILD. Uh, and as we learned about it, we learned to stop drug if you got grade two, so you'd never get to grade three. So I assume that that learning was taking place in the treatment of patients with datapotumab or DATO-DXD. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I'm guessing it's probably fairly similar. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in testing steroid uh, mouthwash, these are just liquids, you know, dexamethasone uh, or other liquid steroids to see if we could reduce the toxicity and also interest in maybe even ice. You know, there's a lot of interest in hmm. some of the cooling companies and sort of ice cool, you know, where you maybe would suck on something cold to try and reduce the delivery Exposure. of the drug to the oral mucosa. Really interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess it wasn't clear from the presentation how much prophylaxis against stomatitis was included in the protocol. There was no prophylaxis no. in the study. So things may change as this, as those, uh, as this agent advances into those later stage trials. And it will, for sure, yeah. for, particularly for stomatitis. So the, the uh, evidence of some activity in uh, trope 2 pretreated patients is certainly um, very interesting. Um, some recent data published about acquired resistance to sacituzumab, govitecan, and looks like some of this may be antibody related, some of it might be cell intrinsic related to the topoisomerase target. Here we have another topoisomerase uh, payload rather than not target, but a payload. So it'd be interesting to understand how these, how these differ uh, potentially in their activity. Yeah, I mean, I always tell people, you know, remember the early NAB paclitaxel data where patients whose cancers progressed on paclitaxel or docetaxel mm -hmm. responded in a reasonable number to weekly NAB paclitaxel. And this wasn't high dose NAB paclitaxel. Right. So it wasn't a dose issue. I mean, I think that drugs work differently, even if they're in the same class, and we can see responses sequentially. So I wasn't too surprised to see that. I think it's going to be interesting to understand where these drugs fall out. And of course, the studies that are planned for DATO-DXD are meant to try and look at an earlier line of therapy than sure. sacetuzumab, you know. Uh, but Although we expect that see. those studies will be coming as well, yes, moving sacetuzumab up into earlier lines and of we therapy. we have post-neoadjuvant studies with sacetuzumab. Sure. So, but we do see a lot of hematologic toxicity with sacetuzumab, so you need to use growth factors. So I think that it's going to be a balance. There's no free lunch. Sure. <laughs> but having more effective agents is, is really exciting. Certainly in this disease. Yeah. I got one other interesting um, note about cross-resistance or related therapies is, um, as I understand it, TDXD and DATO-DXD um, in some of the clinical trials are not allowed in sequence, which would be another very interesting you know, aspect of potential cross-resistance or non-cross-resistance for those patients who are triple negative but have some HER2 expression, perhaps. So-called HER2 low. Yeah. They wouldn't even have to be triple negative, depending on the 
uh, data in hormone receptor positive sure, disease. Sure, right, for, for the, uh, the ER positive but, study you described. Yeah, I mean, I think these kind of idea of sequential therapy is going to be interesting. And it includes sasetuzumab as well, because hopefully we'll see the data from the Tropics sure. trial in the next year or so in hormone receptor positive disease as well. So. So moving on from um, uh, data DXD, we have the two immunotherapy studies that were presented, and these are updates of both of those trials. Which which do you want to start with? Five two two, start in a neoadjuvant setting. Yeah, we can. I think you know the sort of combination in a way, but um, so five two two, as we know, got, was approved at the by the US FDA based on improvement in event-free survival at the fourth interim analysis that was, I think, very clinically relevant. And it wasn't just invasive disease-free survival, but also distant recurrence-free survival. So that was really encouraging. And uh, we learned quite a number of different things. And there were some updates at this uh, meeting, although we're certainly looking for more. So uh, one uh, that we learned was that, and I'll just start with toxicity and then efficacy, but toxicity is increased when you give the combination of a checkpoint inhibitor and chemotherapy compared to the checkpoint inhibitor alone. So there was a big drop off from the toxicity seen in the neoadjuvant to adjuvant setting. Uh, we had seen at the presentation that uh, patients who achieved a PCR, regardless of how they got there, had a pretty good event-free survival over 90%. Uh, but patients who did not have a PCR fared significantly better if they received pembrolizumab uh, versus the chemotherapy and placebo. We don't know how that event-free survival was impacted by post-neoadjuvant pembrolizumab at all. So there were a number of questions that came up about that, which we'll talk about in a moment. We also learned that PDL1 status didn't impact uh, I, any of this uh, pathological complete response before. or event-free survival. We did, however, learn that if you have a PDL1 positive tumor, regardless of the treatment arm, you had a higher PCR rate, which was nice. Um, in the PCR part, we saw that Patients who had node-negative disease seemed to benefit less than patients with node-positive disease. And we also saw, a, although there were less PCR in stage 3 versus stage 2, the relative impact on PCR was greater for stage 3 than for stage 2 hmm. disease, which was really interesting. You look at the forest plots, and now the subset analysis presented here in the event-free survival, almost identical. Uh, benefit in EFS for node positive and node negative, numerically a little better for node positive than node negative. Mm -hmm. Same with stage three and two, a little better for stage three, a little bigger delta delta, but this is really no big difference. You know, it's a couple of percentage points. Um, so benefited both equally, even though clearly the PCR impact was a little bit different. And the question is, why did that happen? And that was a big part of my discussion. And, mm. you know, I think what we have seen is that with uh, immunotherapy that increases PCR, that you see a shift in RCB, RCB to the left. Sure. So residual cancer burden, you're actually seeing a decrease in the amount of residual cancer burden relatively. And we know that the less cancer burden you have correlates with better outcomes. So my guess is what we've done is similar to iSpy2 data, recently published by Fraser Simmons on behalf of our iSpy2 group, that you really do shift that RCB curve to the left. Rita Nanda published our Pembro 4 arm, just four doses of pembrolizumab result in a big shift in RCB downwards, so to the left, mm -hmm. using our left to right approach. Yeah. And uh, also, um, we saw that there was an improvement in IDFS, distant recurrence-free survival, and overall survival in the Dervalumab study, Jepar Nuevo, where they just received Dervalumab preoperatively. Right. So, you know, really interesting data suggesting that, uh, one, we don't know how much IO therapy you really need, and I don't know if we're going to get to that. Um, and two, that 
the uh, benefit in, in PCR may underestimate event-free survival outcomes. So my concern was if you enrolled a relatively low-risk group of patients like Jepar Nuevo, mm. you might miss a significant difference in PCR. There's a numeric difference, but sure. not significant. Because what you're really looking at is a shift in RCB. And there's actually a treatment evaluation score being proposed by the ISPY2 group as a way to better evaluate impact of neoadjuvant therapies, where you look at the full spectrum of RCB change, which I think will be really very interesting. Sure, much more, much, much more to measure. Yes. And the, I showed a Twitter poll oh, did about you? what people would do. A lot of people answered my Twitter poll. And uh, the question was, if you had a PCR, would you continue to complete your Pembro? And you know, about three quarters would, would. Uh, interestingly, and because uh, that's where the data is. Sure. And the second question was, if somebody had residual disease, would you give, would you continue Pembro and add either CAPE or Olaparib? Oh, okay. I didn't ask that question, but everybody would add. Add CAPE cytobine to the pembrolizumab and use it in it. combination. Yeah. yeah. So this is going to be a challenging, uh, a challenging question for sure. Um, with with regard to that RCB, in we clearly see this shift, and indeed, as you alluded to, the even in Keynote five to two, the overall difference in pathologic complete response at the final final analysis was was relatively modest. So this RCB shift presumably uh, reflects much of that neoadjuvant benefit. For the relationship between RCB and EFS, recognize that we've had that shift. Do you think it still holds up if you had immunotherapy or not? Is there the same relationship between you know, RCB1 and your prognosis, RCB2 and your prognosis? Or could the, could the magnitude of that risk change in those RCB groups as well? I think it's a really good question, and we'll understand maybe a little bit more when we have the RCB data from Keynote 522. Um, certainly in iSpy, it appears that RCB holds up with immunotherapy, but the numbers are small. Uh, so we don't, I don't think we have any larger data set than that. It's really just that uh, those two data sets. Um, and, and certainly in Keynote 522, we spent a lot of time, our pathologists spent a lot of time globally training on RCB to be able to hopefully deliver those data to be able to conduct that year, analysis. Hope, yeah. yeah. Great. So what about uh, Keynote 355? We were both involved in that um, study, obviously, but what was your uh, sense of the updated data that was reported at this meeting? Yeah, I mean, I had the honor of presenting the overall survival data because Javier Cortez, who presented the data here, was presenting Destiny Breast of Threes <laughs> at the plenary session at ESMA. So it was kind of a fluke of too many good results. But, um, you know, the overall survival data is so encouraging, 6.9 months. And, you know, I think that that's great. Uh, it, it sort of solidifies the role of pembrolizumab in chemo, it gives us a menu of chemo, a shorter disease-free interval. And basically, a lot of questions came up after that presentation and approval, of course, with approved early and late stage in the US, which was, um, does it matter if there's incremental differences in the uh, combined uh, positive score, CPS? Mm. You know, so if, you know, they did less 10% or more and 1% or more, right about, you know, one to nine. So this presented that whole spectrum, you know, one to nine, 10, over 10, over 20. And it turns out over 10 is still the best cutoff. So that's basically what the presentation showed. I think um, it, you know, brings up a question about, um, the particular test you do, which of course sure. in this situation, uh, we use CPS with a 2,2,C3 antibody. Um, I mentioned that we still really don't know why in Passion 131 
was a negative trial with paclitaxel, and uh, we need to look at the heterogeneity of the tumors in that study to understand because the overall, it's not just that Atezo didn't work, it's that the control population did like, you know, I don't know, 10 months better than we would than expect expected. in a control population. So I wonder if they had a more luminal-like triple negative disease, you know, disease that was ear positive or apocrine-like or any number of different subsets, uh, adenoidocystic, you know, that are uh, that tend to be more chemotherapy responsive and indolent, um, and patients live longer. Uh, and then the you know last question was in Passion 130, atezolizumab is still approved in many parts of the world, mm. just not in the U.S. And it is including in Canada, Canada yeah. yeah. Although uh, access is is um, limited because the braxane is not readily available in Canada. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. And that paclitaxel shortage in the U.S. right now, uh, but. Uh, so the question was, you know, do, is that really a negative trial? And I think the the answer in my mind is sort of a statistical, uh, the statistical plan uh, led to an unfortunate result, which what didn't doesn't actually mean that a Tesla doesn't work, uh, but there are too many unanswered questions. Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting that the Delta was seven months at the same time frame at 6.9 months for uh, Pembro. And so there's clearly a survival benefit. It's just that you know, we just do not understand the kind of oddities of why 131 wasn't positive, and then the statistical design of 130, which required that they have confirmatory data. And you know, indeed, the statistical design of, of many of these immunotherapy studies have been critical to their success or failure. And Keynote 355, when it was initially designed, didn't have the 10% cutoff. It was based on 1%. So you know, rec those changes were done before the data was available. But clearly, that has identified a threshold which is, uh, has been essential for the success of Keynote 355. Yeah, they were lucky. Yeah. We saw some, uh, I think, some recent data this week as well, looking at TMB, for example, with immunotherapy and, you know, similar uh, findings that refinement of those thresholds can make a big difference. Yeah, I thought the TMB data from uh, today was quite interesting in the Nimbus trial, which is a combination of two immunotherapies, mm -hmm. ipilimumab and nivolumab, and a low dose of ipilimumab because the combination at a high dose has really resulted a in a ton of toxicity, a lot of adrenal insufficiency mm -hmm. as well. Um, although some durable responses, it's really not workable. Uh, that study was interesting to me because I think they did a nice job, but it doesn't tell me anything to move ahead with yet. You know, I think that in high tumor mutational burden, checkpoint inhibitors are effective. Whether or not you need to give doublet therapy, we don't know. And that's, I think, the question that arises out of that particular study. Sure, and really any single, any single arm immunotherapy study in, in breast cancer now is complicated by the fact that the patients who are selected to be enrolled in those trials are selected for many reasons, right? Not only the TMB, but there are other things that can't be you know, well quantified in the study report by their physicians and the enrolling investigators. But PDO one didn't make a difference, which in I the study, was interesting. No, that's interesting. Yeah, TMB can uh, weigh over the patients I've had who've had very long duration uh, responses to a single agent checkpoint inhibitor with pembrolizumab um, had, uh, and these are lobular cancer patients mm. who have just terribly resistant, awful disease. They all had, you know, tumor mutational burdens of like 60. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, it does, I think, I had already sort of decided that must predict benefits. Sure. So it was nice to see that as well. And those were people who did have very high numbers, but tiny, tiny numbers. Mm. So. So I have, uh, I'm fortunate to have a number of patients who have had very prolonged and durable benefit of pembrolizumab with triple negative breast cancer who participated, well, some of them got pembrolizumab, others were treated on clinical trials, and I don't know if they got pembrolizumab. Um, but 
seeing that you, you mentioned the, the the delta in the progression in the uh, median overall survival of these curves, we know also that there are there seem to be plateaus in these curves with the longer follow-up in Keynote 355, including uh, in overall survival. And you know, there again, uh, PDL1 seems to make a difference, right? The 10%, 20% off, percent cutoff, we see you know, a, a large number of patients achieving that durable benefit. One question that, I, that I've had, and you know, we've seen the, the Keynote um, 119 data where patients with higher PDL1 levels treated with pembrolizumab monotherapy could have responses. So for these patients with high PDL1 levels, and indeed in 355, you know, we see some patients who have quite high levels, do they really need the chemotherapy? Could some of these people, could some of these patients achieve you know, long and durable benefit and avoid the toxicity of chemotherapy that comes with that upfront combination? No, I mean, it's a great um, uh, comment and thought. I think you know, even in the group, small group in uh, Keynote 119 that looked at single agent Pembro in the second and third line, um, you know, the, there were better survival, but it wasn't like stunning. No, so I it's think about that, one in seven, about one in seven participants had a response. So yeah. it's, it's clearly, or one in, you know, one in seven um, participants had PDL one of 20% and of them 20 or 30%, I think achieved a response. Yeah. And then the responding patients, you know, did well, they had longer survival on a subset of a subset, but I don't know how that really translates into how we should treat people in clinical practice because I'd still Absolutely. give chemo. I do have, you know, a long-term survival with checkpoint inhibitor therapy alone, as you mentioned also. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I stopped at five years hmm. uh, because she kept having colitis. And, uh, so this was with, this was with continued, um, continued checkpoint therapy for yeah. five years. Yeah. She was on the original Keynote 80. With, six trial without uh, the two-year uh, treatment second and greater duration. line setting where the response rate was six percent in pd1 mm -hmm. positive disease she had a cr in lung and you know i think probably some of it depends on where your disease is sure. and, uh, and then just some luck that we don't understand yet uh giampaolo uh, biancini who presented some interesting data on spatial analysis uh, on the first morning that I won't review because it's complicated. Yeah. But uh, it's really interesting, actually, how close the cells are together and everything. But he uh, also has this IO score that he's been working mm. on for the Neotrip trial. And so, you know, we're all working. I think everybody's working on ways of looking at combined analyses to try and figure out if we can understand who benefits, who doesn't need checkpoint inhibitors, et cetera. But I'd love to move on to some of the sure, talks the that were positive. today. And I think the, um, the talk that had the most sort of press and discussion and will continue to was the Emerald trial uh, testing Elasistrant. Um, tell us how you discussed that. Tell us sure. a little bit about the so, trial and the results. Uh, so Emerald, this was the, as Dr. Bardia presented, the first phase three trial of one of the novel oral SIRDs um, in breast cancer. And this study uh, randomized uh, participants who had had one or two prior lines of endocrine therapy for metastatic breast cancer to Elasistrant or a standard of care endocrine therapy. And here the standard of care was physician's choice, which could include one of three aromatase inhibitor or fulvestrin. So a pragmatic study, which meant that uh, there's a mix of patients who have had one or two prior lines, so second or third line endocrine treatment, and about 20% of patients had also had one line of chemotherapy. So you know, perhaps a little bit different than what we might see today, or if we were planning a study today where most People um, get AI and uh, get a CDK4-6 inhibitor in the in the first line, and much of our focus is really on understanding really the, the more pure second line population. I think, but um, 
clearly exciting to see these, these data for a new agent and a new class of agents. Um, this study, interestingly, was designed with two primary endpoints, progression-free survival in the overall intent-to-treat population and progression-free survival in the ESR1 mutant population. You know that ESR1 mutations are obviously important for acquired resistance to endocrine therapy, uh, particularly aromatase inhibitors. And roughly 40% of the, the population of the trial had an ESR1 mutation as detected in everyone by a circulating tumor DNA assay at the time of enrollment. So um, both of those primary endpoints were positive. The magnitude of benefit was larger the hazard ratio was smaller, the magnitude of benefit was larger in the ESR1 mutant population. Here, sort of like the uh, Keynote 355 data, we don't have the data for the ESR1 wild type patients. We only have the intent to treat and the mutant population. So it's sort of like that one to 9% population, what happens in them? Mathematically, it looks like there's probably not a large benefit in the ESR1 uh, wild type population, and there wasn't a four spot included for that. But we'll look forward to see um, how, uh, that group may or may not benefit from this agent. Uh, importantly, what we've seen in the study, and we've seen in prior studies of post-CDK4-6 inhibitor uh, treatment, is that many patients, unfortunately, do very poorly with uh, endocrine monotherapy. This was seen in Veronica, as presented uh, at ASCO this summer, study of fulvestrant with or without uh, venetoclax, and their progression-free survival with fulvestrant monotherapy of about two months. And same thing was seen here with the treatment of physician's choice, the, the standard of care arm. Progression-free survival was um, shorter than the first interval scan. So I think this you know, clearly emphasizes the need to improve our treatments for the CDK4-6 resistant setting overall. Um, but that beyond that initial drop-off, there seems to be a separation of uh, those two curves maintained with L-acestrant. Um, and importantly, this is a drug which seems to be pretty well tolerated on the basis of the recorded treatment-related adverse events. Uh, GI toxicities, including nausea, vomiting, uh, were the principal toxicities that were increased. I think for these, you know, the patient-reported outcomes will be very important to understanding the quality of life on this agent, as opposed to fulvestrant, for example. Um, so, you know, much excitement in the development of oral SIRDs. This is a large uh, class of agents, more than 10 agents currently in clinical trials, including um, about five that are in, in phase three trials, really ranging from um, the adjuvant setting all the way through to metastatic combinations with targeted therapy. So we have a lot to learn. I think we'll learn a lot more from the Emerald data as uh, those correlative analyses are performed. We really begin to understand who is that group of uh, patients, both molecularly and clinically, who progress quickly on second, on second or third line monotherapy and require something else. Let me ask you a question. So uh, there were a few thoughts that I had in just hearing this data that, um, and they're, you know, I think they still sort of worry me a little bit that, you know, patients, a uh, fair proportion had prior fulvestrant. Those patients had to go on an AI. They were quite likely to have had an ESR1 mutation. So it was not too hard to beat an AI in a patient with the ESR1 mutation. We didn't see that breakdown. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the second thing is the deltas were really small, even though it was highly statistically significant. The hazard ratios were good. The delta for the entire population was less than a month in terms of PFS. And for the ESR1 population was less than two months. Almost two months. Yeah, <laughs> but, certain. Uh, and then, so the, the third question, just so I get them all in there, is that, yes, it's oral and really well tolerated compared to what we saw in previous generations of oral certs, but 
you know, think about you getting an injection once a month, you know, particularly if you're Medicare, it's completely covered, right? Mm. You're going to take a really expensive pill and maybe, you know, I was looking at the vomiting. It was all low grade, you know, grade one-ish, one grade but two. It may be important. For... It was 20%. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. You know, if you feel nauseated half of the time and it's low grade, is that, and you're spending more money, is that better? I don't know. And, you know, they talked a lot about the six and 12 month PFS. And the question is, why do we see that if we don't see the longer, bigger separation? Thank you to our speakers and to you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple, Podbean and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.